0: Indeed, it is a foretaste of our deliverance, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrate on this day. And because of that, we do have unwavering hope, which is the point of the text that we are going to consider this morning through the proclamation of God's word. Our sermon text is from John, the Gospel of John 14. Verses 1 through 11, though we'll primarily focus on 1 through 7. This is God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning, words spoken through our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us hearing and giving us hearing, you would give us life, true spiritual life, so that we might continue to believe and have this everlasting hope that is ours in Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. So as we consider Jesus' resurrection this morning, there are many, many biblical themes and doctrines that we can consider, doctrinal truths that we can ponder and study and, and find joy and truth and hope. But it is that idea of hope, I believe, that rises above all others, and that is what we will consider this morning, the hope that is ours Because of Christ. You see we have real hope. Because we have a real savior. Who truly rose from the dead. To defeat death and sin in hell. Once for all. That's the hope. The hope of the gospel. It's the kind of hope. That encourages us. To look to the horizon. To to see our coming king. Who will complete his great redeeming work. Which he has begun. In us, which He has begun through the cross and the rising from the grave. As Tim Keller put it, Christ's resurrection not only gives you hope for the future, it gives you hope to handle your scars right now. And that's the kind of hope we need. Hope that looks at things like illness or cancer or war or anger And hatred and abuse. And says they are not the final answer. Because Jesus has risen from the grave. And has defeated them. You see hope. The resurrected hope of Christ. Is the one thing that brings sanity to this insane world. It is a thing that we need. That gives us our purpose and reason for living. Hope truly brings us into true and beautiful life of God's grace. So in John 14, Jesus gives us this ultimate message of hope that He will send to His disciples. It's a hope that is not a mere wish or longing that things might be different one day, but it is hope grounded in the reality of Christ and His resurrection. Jesus is the true hope. He is the only true hope for troubled souls, and hearts. And He is that. And thus He commands us to not have troubled hearts, but to believe in God and to believe in Him. But before we can see that He is our only true hope for our troubled hearts, we need to understand what a troubled heart, a troubled soul really is because he speaks of it here in this text. And the reality is, just like Jesus' disciples, we all have troubled hearts. What is a troubled heart then? Well, the idea here in this text is, is a life that is under great distress in turbulence, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And the, the idea of being troubled is like a body of water that at one time was smooth and calm, but then comes a storm and it is now an agitated, violent, roaring full of waves crashing upon the shore. The word he uses for troubled is also found in many Greek Hippocratic texts. So those about early medicine to speak of a churning stomach, an upset stomach, one that is agitated and twisting within. And so we understand what he's talking about here. It's not just a, a simple concern, but this is a, a constant anxiety that it is pressing upon the soul and it is battering you and weakening you and and, and weakening your faith and filling you with fear and doubt and discouragements. Jesus is speaking of a a spiritual anxiety and a weakening of faith. And we could argue that Jesus' disciples in this text actually had good reason to have troubled hearts. After all, Jesus has just made, before we come to this text here in John 14, some very startling revelations to them. Here they have been traveling with Christ for for years now and uh, minis- seeing him, what he can do as he ministers through miracle and through his word. And he begins to reveal things about his death and how it's going to affect them. I mean, he tells them in, in John 7, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I Where I am, you cannot come. Speaking of His death. In addition to speaking of His death, He he told them that one of them would actually betray Him. John 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. He has also warned them that, that men like Peter, bold Peter, a leader among the disciples, would deny Christ not just once, but three times. He has told them all in Luke 22 that that Satan would actually work against them all and that some of the disciples would fall away. And all of these things, of course, he speaks regarding his coming death upon the cross, a death that was imminent, that was to happen soon here in the gospel of John these are words that would cause a heart to be troubled, to be filled with fear and doubt. Calvin commenting on what the disciples were experiencing says that a contest so arduous and so terrible awaited them. For it was no ordinary temptation. They would see him, that is Jesus, hanging on a cross, a spectacle in which nothing was to see, be seen but ground for the lowest despair. And so in light of that, no wonder then they are discouraged. No wonder they are doubtful and anxious. No wonder their hearts are troubled. But Jesus looks upon them with a look of love and mercy, not anger and judgment. And he encourages them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Having a troubled heart is completely natural when the circumstances of life are overwhelming like this. We have all been in these early disciples' shoes, have we not? We, we look at the agony of this world and our society and we see war and hate and anger and abuse of power. Our, our own country, which has for so long promised to be a beacon of hope for all, is plagued by bitterness and division and confusion and even open defiance of God's good created order and his laws. And we have witnessed broken relationships By circumstance and death, suffering by illness in war, overwhelming emotional distress, anxiety and depression that comes from real struggles with work and life. And you add to that the reality that we know in our hearts we are guilty of transgressing God's law. Yes, indeed, we live in this shattered and fallen sinful world and we have helped it to become that way. And so no wonder then our hearts, like these disciples, are often troubled. But Christ's exhortation to those early disciples to not be shaken, but to believe is an exhortation for us all. A call to faith. You see, when our hearts are troubled, we are to believe Christ as our true hope. Which brings us to the very heart of this text how is it that Jesus can be true hope for a troubled heart? Why can we believe Him and not be troubled? Because as He says here, He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life. So the very first reason Jesus is real hope for your troubled soul is that He is the way. Or to put it in another, other words, Jesus is the Your hope because he is your reconciliation to God. You see, Jesus is our reconciliation as explained here in the text and his promise that he gives after commanding his disciples to not be troubled in their hearts. uh, But pointing them to faith, to continue to believe He gives them a promise in which they are to believe. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, many people who read this text believe Jesus is talking about heaven, and indeed he is. There is truth to that, but there is something much bigger than just a future in God's heaven. What Jesus is describing here, it is literally a dwelling place, the dwelling place of God. He speaks of the Father's house, and what is a house? It's a dwelling place a place where people can dwell together in community. And that's the idea here behind Jesus' words when he speaks of the Father's house that has many rooms. He's speaking of a place where God and his people will dwell together in peace and harmony and true unity. And so Jesus is saying, if he says, I am going to make for you, make it possible for you to dwell with God forever. In other words, he's saying, I will reconcile you back to God. I will make it possible for you to have a relationship with the Father, a relationship that was broken, that was breached by your sin. I'm going to close that. I am the way. And that's the big picture of this dwelling place. Not just a future in the presence of God, but a present reality where we enjoy his presence now as his people. And so he says, Believe in God. Believe in me. I am the way. I am preparing this place. I will be the thing, the object, the one who reconciles you back to God so you can be his people. And that should sound very familiar to us because we've heard it before in the Scriptures. You see, that is God's covenant promise. That He will have a people for Himself and He will dwell in the midst of them and they will know Him and He will be their God. That's the heart of the Gospel. He has always wanted a place to dwell and commune and know His people and to show them His love and His goodness, and His holiness. First, that dwelling place was to be a garden called Eden. And there He placed Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, to dwell in fellowship with Him until that tragic day that they sinned and that relationship they enjoyed with God was now broken. And that broken status of that relationship is passed on to every single human born in this earth by virtue of Adam being their representative there in the garden. And so now any relationship you have with God starts already at a place of brokenness as a result of the fallen human nature. But God never gave up on his desire to dwell with his people. And he promised that one day one would come a mediator who would reconcile this broken relationship between God and his people so that true fellowship could exist once again. And that promise was pictured First through the tabernacle in the wilderness as Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, wandered through the wilderness. Later in the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem where the presence of God dwelt in the midst of His people. But those pointed to a better temple, a greater temple, one that was made without hands. One that would have many rooms for all God's redeemed people to dwell within. That temple, that dwelling place is our hope and it is ours through Jesus, our way, our reconciliation. It's our final destination, but it's also our present reality. And no, we are not in full possession of this home yet, but the keys have already been placed in our hands by Christ who went to the cross for us and rose so that we might have life. And so because of that we enjoy now this relationship with the father reconciled to him we already possess heaven by virtue of our hope. The doors of the father's house are already thrown wide open because Jesus threw open the door of the tomb signifying that the way to God is now open. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, responds to Jesus' statement here that He is going to be going away from them in order to make this way to God open for God to dwell with His people. And he says, well, Lord, we do not know where You're going. How can we know the way? How can we know the way? And I love Jesus' answer. He looks at Thomas and he says, Thomas, I, I am the way. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, well, Thomas, I know the way to to the father. So just follow me down this path. No, he says, Thomas, you actually know the way because you know me. You see, when, when Jesus says He is the way, He isn't showing you a road that you must walk down to find the Father's house as if there is some sort of pathway you can travel on your own to enjoy this reconciliation with God. But rather, Jesus declares that He is that road. He is that way. He is the one that makes enjoying the presence of the Father in His house possible. You see, you and I, we can't walk the road that Jesus walked. That road led all the way up to a skull-shaped hill with a wooden cross. And it led him straight into the full wrath of God upon sin, which he absorbed for us. And it led him into a deep and dark tomb for us. So that we might be free of sin and death forever. That is something that you and I could never do. We could not follow in Jesus' path. But we can know Him as the way to God. He became the way for you. As he said in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, and the understanding is I am going and I am preparing a place for you. I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. And so to take possession of this promise and be reconciled to God is simply to believe, yes, Jesus is the way. He is my resurrection. And as Jesus commanded in verse 1, believe in God. Believe in His promise to dwell with His people. Believe that He will send one to reconcile Him. Uh, God back to Himself, or His people back to Himself. And He says, don't just believe the promise. Uh, get this, He says, believe Me. Believe that I am the fulfillment of that promise. I am the way of reconciliation. As Paul said in Colossians, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so Jesus Christ is our hope because he is our reconciliation to God. Secondly, Jesus is our hope because he is the revelation of God to us. That is to say, he is the truth. Because as he says here, I am the way, I am the truth. Now we hear that word truth and we think of different things that that come to mind. We think of a abstract system of propositions. Uh, we may think of uh, truth as being an impersonal ethic contained in rules and regulations. We often think of truth as simply being the, the opposite of deceit or error, and all those things are true about truth. See what I did there? Hmm. But there's something more to the understanding of truth in the Bible And it actually has to do with this concept of revelation. In other words, truth is what has been revealed to us by God. It is what God reveals to us. Specifically, God revealing Himself to us. To understand what is meant by truth here in the New Testament, we can dive a little bit into this word. So let's get a little bit nerdy here and look at some greek and i'll I'll keep it simple the greek word for truth is aletheia it's a compound of the word letho which means to conceal that which has been hidden and then a prefix ah which you add to a word to negate it so aletheia then is to make unhidden to make something that is concealed or covered now revealed And so by telling us that He is the truth, Jesus is saying, I am the revelation. I am revealing God to you. Because after all, He is God Himself. To know Him is to know God. But there's more to Christ being the truth that is just simply a revelation from God. There's another nuance that comes into play here. John, as the author of this gospel, was Jewish. And so when we study the Bible, it helps to see how John, as a Jew, would have understood this word he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit for truth. And when we do that, we look at this word aletheia as it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And we find it's a word uh, that is used that is translated from the Hebrew word "aman," which means simply to stand firm, unchanging, and valid. So it's speaking of fidelity. What that means then, as the truth, when Jesus says, I am the truth, He's saying, not only am I revealing God to you, but I am the faithful fulfillment of all God has promised throughout all ages past to redeem people back to Himself. As the revelation of God, He speaks with divine authority. All that He says is pure and right. His words are the faithful representation of God's truth. And He being God Himself is the faithful revelation of what the Bible calls a mystery that is now revealed. And he explains how he is this revelation in verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So the idea here is that of knowledge. Which again points us back to this concept of a relationship. Relationship. To really know somebody, you have to have a relationship established with them. And the deeper the relationship, the deeper the knowledge with that person grows. To know the Father then, you must know the Son. who is the supreme revelation of God. And to know the Son is simply, as Jesus says, a matter of faith. Believe in me. The Apostle Paul explains in Colossians through 27 that the Gospel of Christ was the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to His saints. That is, all who believe in Christ and trust Him. And to them, Paul writes, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, when you receive the gospel in faith, Christ does dwell in you. The very revelation of God Himself dwells in you. And you are numbered amongst His people. And that, my friends, that really is real and genuine hope. Not a wish, not an expectation. Of something that may or may not happen. But real hope. Founded upon the reality. Of the risen Savior Jesus Christ. So Christ is our hope. Because he is the revelation of God. And he is our hope. Because he is our reconciliation to God. And finally Jesus is our hope. Because he is our restoration. Which is the final part of this great I am statement. He says I am the way. Reconciliation, I am the truth, revelation, and I am the life, your restoration. You see, being the way speaks of Jesus as the means of knowing the Father. And being the truth speaks of Jesus as being the manner in which the Father is made known to us. Again, a relationship. And being the life speaks of the dynamic that makes that knowledge and that relationship possible. It's of little wonder then that this, this concept of Jesus being life is written all through the Gospel of John. You can go back to John 1.4 where we read in Him was life and the life was the light of men. John 5.26, for as the Father has life in Him, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And John 11.35, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. The reason Jesus presents Himself, of course, as our life is simply as we absolutely need new life. You see, the Bible speaks of us apart from God's work of grace in our hearts as being spiritually dead. According to the Scriptures, in each person that is born, there is no goodness, no spark of life or light of hope within the heart of a person. Paul tells us that everyone before the grace of God rescues them, is dead in their trespasses and sins, in Ephesians 2. And he also says in Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, and all have turned aside because they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the implication of that. And how it affects every person on this earth is absolutely staggering. Because it means that our greatest need as people in this earth is not restoration of our physical life or healing of our physical problems, as important as those may be. But since we are... Apart from Christ, spiritually dead, our greatest need then is for spiritual life, spiritual vitality and restoration. And that is the very purpose for which Christ came to restore life. I came that they may have life, he says in John 10, and have it abundantly. And it is the very reason he died and rose. Romans 14, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of the dead and of the living. And so as we walk through the scriptures, what we learn then is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus is able to restore the spiritual life to all who believe in him. And for that reason, our awakening to God, our, the grace of God in our life is grounded not upon our emotions or how we feel, but upon a historical reality, the very resurrection of Christ Himself. That is the heart of the Gospel message. And if you take away Christ's resurrection, you don't have hope. But Jesus did rise. And because He did rise, there is hope for our troubled hearts. There is another truth here regarding Jesus being our life. And that is one that in our current culture is often not accepted. In fact, it causes many people to reject Him. And it's expressed in verses 6-7. through As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He then says this, no one, nobody, not a single person, without exception, no one comes to the Father except, except through Me. And if you had known Me, you would have known the Father also. For now, you do know Him and have seen Him. He's talking about the exclusivity of the gospel you see there is no other faith but faith in Christ that gives this true hope for troubled hearts he is after all your very spiritual life your only way to be restored back to the father and to have this new life imparted into you and jesus couldn't be any clearer nobody comes to the father except through me. The only way to know the Father, the only way to know God's mercy and grace is through Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Everything else then leads to death, but in Christ is life. And so Jesus is hope for your troubled heart because he reconciles you back to God And Jesus has hope for your troubled heart and soul because he is the very revelation of God to you. And he is the faithful fulfiller of all God's covenant promises for you. And he has hope for your troubled heart because he is the very restoration of your life. He gives you spiritual life with God forever. But how does that play out in real life? Because you say, well, Pastor, I do believe God. I I believe in Christ. But, you know, life in this world does cause my heart still to become troubled. Jesus knows that. In fact, that's why he speaks these words. You see, in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled by all these things that are going to happen, about me being taken from you and you being scattered and one of you betraying me and many of you uh, running from me and Peter, you denying me. Don't be troubled by that. Believe in me. Trust me. But notice what He doesn't promise them. He doesn't promise them that all those terrible things wouldn't happen because they did happen. They had to happen. The trouble came. And by John 19, they see Him beaten and bloodied and hanging on a wooden cross and dying for the sins of many. And they see His life fade away from Him. And they are scattered. And Peter has denied Him. And Judas has betrayed Him. And hearts are now crushed. And hope seems as if it had died. But true to his word, by John 20, Jesus has risen and he has defeated the grave and sin. And he stands before his disciples and he says to them, peace be with you. So the trouble came, but God was faithful to his word and the hope remained. Because Jesus is our hope is a hope that is not based on emotion or how we are feeling or what might come to pass if certain conditions are fulfilled. But it is hope that is based upon the fact that all the conditions to be made right with God have already been met. It is a reality. A certainty. And that is why God's people come together not just on Easter... But every single Sunday, the first day of the week, the same day that Jesus rose from the grave, because we need to be reminded of this hope every week on a regular basis. We need to have the promise of the covenant spoken to us again and again that we, by God's grace, are His people renewed in our hearts and minds through word and through sacrament and through our very worship. That is where we encounter the hope for our troubled hearts. And so, friends, if your heart is troubled, When you come together with God's people, you are coming to the right place. Because it is there that you commune with that living Savior. So come to Jesus. Come and believe. And if you believe, keep on believing. And know that your hope is real. Real hope for troubled hearts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that Christ is the way and the truth and the life, that he is real hope for troubled hearts and minds, that he does speak his truth and his life into us, that our faith is not some emotional feeling, but is grounded upon the very reality of his resurrection. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to show us these things as we walk through this life for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.